I haven't taken my summer bike out yet and today was a good reminder of the dangers of doing that a little bit too early. We got about 10 centimeters of snow today. When I woke up there was already a decent accumulation on my neighbor's roof which I, well, the, the roof to my neighbor's garage which I can see from my window quite well. It's a good spot where for snow to accumulate on. Uh, the trees are covered. I saw videos online of the streets. A uh, slushy mess. And I was glad, I guess, in a way, in a small way, that I haven't taken out my summer bike yet. I haven't taken out any bike in the last few days as you may have heard from my last podcast i have caught the covid the sars-cov-2 virus the rona and i've been isolating and for the first time in a long time yesterday after isolating for already a, a good number of days i think i'm on day nine today i decided to look at the guidelines by set out by the Quebec government as to how long one should isolate and how to emerge out of isolation. And the guidelines were quite funny in, in a poor way, in a troubling way, because, I mean, it, I feel like I knew some of it, but I wasn't, I, I was aware that they had reduced the isolation period to five days, as the CDC in the United States has done, as almost every other jurisdiction in Canada has done, I believe, if not all of them. They reduced the isolation time to five days. And I thought you could emerge out of that after testing negative on rapid tests or PCR tests slowly you know that you could like test yourself and if you're still positive wait again 24 hours and test yourself and then that the recommendation that's i feel like in my head at some point the recommendation was that you needed to have two negative tests 24 hours apart to emerge out of isolation but that is not the case at all there is no testing required at this present time to emerge, to emerge out of isolation. <laughs> After five days, if you have spent at least 24 hours without a fever, which is just one of the symptoms, the potential symptoms that you could get from SARS-CoV-2, if this one particular symptom is no, it has no longer been present for 24 hours, you can emerge out of isolation and re-enter society, go back to work, go back to restaurants, go, you know, just be, the, the guidelines say, just, you know, be prudent. <laughs> be fucking prudent by infecting other people. Well, you know, <laughs> prudently continue the chain of infections. Uh, <laughs> I'm doing okay. I feel like my mental space is okay. I 
do not. I feel like if if I had not tested positive, I would have. It might have been more difficult. I've had a couple of instances previous in the last past few years where I thought I had it. Was fairly certain I had it, even though I didn't test positive on any test right at the beginning when tests were scarce. And uh, a few months ago around Christmas, when tests were again super scarce, I thought I had it. But I, you know, I couldn't test myself enough uh, or sufficiently, I guess, to have a confirmed case. So maybe I didn't have it. Maybe this is my first time having it. I don't know. I can't say. But this time it is confirmed by uh, the rats. And I've been fortunate enough to be able to afford a longer isolation. I mean, one of the primary difficulties with isolations, as everybody well knows, I mean, this well-worn territory at this point, isolation is difficult because maybe you receive some financial support from the government, but you still have to deal with all the logistics of like feeding yourself. And yeah, that's a primary one, feeding yourself, housing yourself in an isolated environment. So I've been lucky fortunate enough to be able to do that and to be able to isolate to my comfort level without having the financial pressure to emerge, to follow the guidelines, I guess, Uh, to follow the current guidelines, which are very, very lax. I have been reading a little bit about what is happening in Shanghai, in China, which seems, which is a city that's in lockdown. It's like 25 million people, maybe more, 26 million. A very large city, many, many times bigger than Montreal. It's in full lockdown. And what I've gathered from reading people's accounts online, people who are actually in China, is that a lot of Chinese view what is happening in Shanghai as a failure to avoid because, well, the rest of the country has kind of stuck rather strictly to the zero COVID policy, zero COVID guidelines. And Shanghai made an attempt to follow a more Western method of lo- of delayed lockdowns. They didn't uh, clamp down on things as rapidly as other cities have. They didn't clamp down when they when it was still limited to just a few cases. So now they're reporting cases in the thousands daily. So like it, I feel like I've said this before. In other podcasts that deal with COVID, that and the origins of COVID in China, it's uh, one needs to realize that even though um, we get this image of in the West of this centralized, all-powerful Chinese Communist Party apparatus, it is a country over like 
one and a half billion people almost, and with huge numbers of local, municipal, provincial governments managing an enormous population. So even from like district to district in Shanghai, the situation is not the same. So it, it's not as huge surprise that uh, the situation from one city to another is different, that the government's uh, handling of things are not paper copies of each other, carbon copies of each other from one jurisdiction to the next. They are dealing with like a huge bureaucracy. And one thing that has happened over there that I have not heard of over here is that officials in charge have actually gotten fired for mishandling the pandemic, which has not happened here at all. We have had famously, I guess, most famously, famously, the resignation of Horatio Arruda. But uh, nobody's been fired for the fuck up uh, that our pandemic response has been. And in fact, people are applauded for their failures. Um, the, locally here in Quebec, the, uh, the Coalition Avenir Quebec, the CAC, recently voted against conducting an inquiry as to um, the early response in the old folks' homes, the government-run CHSLDs. They voted against having a proper inquiry into it. And when the two ministers most responsible for it stood up at the National Assembly to vote against the inquiry, their parties clapped for them. Their party, the CAC, clapped for them. They reward failure. It was recently revealed that not only were less people handling it incompetently, but that they knew of the catastrophe happening in old folks' homes before these story broke out in the press. <sighs> That's the state of our public officials. <laughs> anyway, I guess today is an all-COVID kind of podcast day. Because last time I, I was on here, I said I wanted to talk about a new article in Vanity Fair published by Catherine Eben, who has published a couple of investigative pieces in Vanity Fair. I know Vanity Fair doesn't ring out. You know, when, when you think Vanity Fair, usually like investigative reporting, hard-hitting investigative reporting is not the sort of thing that pops to mind, but it happens at Vanity Fair. Quite lots of it. Over the years, uh, there's been a lot of uh, different important journalists who have published in Vanity Fair. And here we are during the pandemic with Catherine Eben doing some really rather um, insightful researching. The first of her articles, which came out last year, June 3rd, titled The Lab Leak Theory 
incite the fight to uncover COVID-19's origins really provided, I think, one of the better accounts of how, of the internal struggle within the American government, notably the State Department and the National Institute of Health, on how best to respond to inquiries concerning the origin of the pandemic. And you could see that there were like two factions trying to gain control of the narrative, those who wanted a full investigation and those who did not. And it seems like those who did not want the full investigation primarily was of, was out of a selfish interest uh, to hide the fact that the American government had partly funded the research going on at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. This has been well established to this point. It's not huge amounts of money, but there are links. And American scientists have been collaborating with Chinese scientists for a very long time on viral research. And the she's published, Catherine Evan has published a more recent piece on March 31st of this year, 2022. And it's called, I'll link to both of these pieces on the show notes. It's called This Shouldn't Happen inside the virus hunting nonprofit at the center of the lab leak controversy. And as as the title suggests, it is really an expose about the early beginnings and the development of the EcoHealth Alliance, a nonprofit uh, really focused on virus hunting, the what is known as the global um, oh my god, is it GVP, the Global Viral Project? Uh, I can't remember now. Anyway, EcoHealth Alliance and their head, led by Peter Daszak, their main goal is virus hunting for the purposes of predicting future pandemics. But this virus hunting did not include simply collecting and cataloging viruses but also doing research on them and playing around with them to see if a potential pandemic virus could emerge. They wanted to predict where and when pandemic viruses would potentially enter the human population. But their work bore no fruits whatsoever Except, perhaps, perhaps, it's up in the air, the question is not answered, but one thing that many people have been saying is that the research happening in Wuhan could have potentially led to the emergence of SARS-CoV-2. Now, it's complicated. I follow a lot of different people on Twitter, as you may have heard me mention once or twice on the podcast. Some of them are really, really into conspiracy theories well beyond what I am willing to dabble in. Some of them are very, very reasonable and hedge their bets as to what the past, you know, and actually refuse to like say 
to answer like the 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 the, the, the most common journalist questions like what percentage of certainty do you have that it's a lab leak or a natural origin or something else the conspiracy theory theory minded folks uh which who who also pose like interesting stuff i find that they are offering uh counter narrative at times very possible and at times a bit kooky but and and you know whenever there is a counter narrative that they like or that you know anyway that's i feel like sometimes <laughs> they leap too easily on absolutely any counter narrative and end up you know forging associations with people who are not to be taken super seriously like glenn beck for example um but i still like to <laughs> see their tweets coming out and see what kind of information they're trying to to pass out because it's interesting um and th then you have the other side of the fence the viro vir virology industrial complex so to speak which you know pe pe you know which involves the circle of scientists who are in some way associated with the NIH, with Dr. Fauci, with Peter Daszak, uh, who have, you know, uh, there's oh, Angela Rasmussen, who is an American working out in, working in Saskatchewan, I believe. Uh, they all take a very hard pro-natural origin stance, which also seems a little bit um, like it, ignores quite a lot of the evidence the circumstantial evidence that has emerged supporting a potential lab origin of the virus i've said this before and i'll say it again just because i feel like it's a good caveat to have like the lab leak and the natural origin it's not like one or the other it really is a spectrum of possibilities because with all the virus hunting research that was happening at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, it is very possible that a naturally occurring virus escaped from a lab. So in that case, both it is both a lab leak and a natural origin, right? So there's the, you know, that, I mean, like that's the perfect it's both scenario, uh, but then there's other scenarios all around it. Was it manipulated in some capacity within the lab? <sighs> and that could be, you know, that could range from like intentional bioweapon to accidental uh, unknown catastrophe. So there's many ways uh, in, w in which both scenarios could be true. They're not mutually exclusive. Um, and many ways in which in each within each one um, that either complicate matters or make it simpler. I mean, if the virus emerged naturally, from wild animals, that seems very simple, and you know, and, and transmitted to humans from very simple. But if once you start trying to connect wildlife 
farms and wildlife trade? Was it something that emerged within those farms, wildlife? It's weird, wildlife farms, you know, like farming of like exotic animals. Um, which, again, it seems if you follow the... Anyway, I'm going to put that aside for the moment. And we're going to focus on Catherine Eben's article. I think it's a very good read. It gives you a nice insight into the inner workings of EcoHealth Alliance. It would be nice to have a similar article uh, done on the Wellcome Trust, led by Jeremy Farr, which is a British counterpart to EcoHealth Alliance. And Jeremy Farr, like Peter Daszak, has had a hand in trying to obfuscate things, trying to really push the conversation towards a natural spillover and away from any potential lab leak origin. And the way they do this, the way they both have done this, is by really zeroing in on the more extreme side of the lab leak hypothesis, which is that it was a bioweapon, right? If you can just you know, show that the bioweapon idea is crazy. And then you use, they use that to kind of discredit the whole lab leak, uh, possibility. But anyway, they, they, they succeeded for about a year. And then around March, around April, March, uh, sorry, April, May, June of 2021, that started to unravel when more journalists, like Catherine Eppen, uh started publishing stuff regarding taking the lab leak more seriously. One of the, the opening of the, of her article really does, I think <laughs> most of the article doesn't really give you any juicy bits. It doesn't really have, I mean, it shows you that Equal Health Alliance is really financially interested, really financially invested in this virus hunting research but it doesn't you know it doesn't post any condemning evidence uh regarding their activities that we, that we didn't already know um and we can refer to the lancet letter for example as like one clear example of like peter dajak trying to tip the scales in favor of uh, natural spillover the most interesting bit of Evan's story comes right at the start. She opens with it because it, it's so juicy. It's so meaty. Uh, and I'll just read a couple of paragraphs. Uh, maybe just opening three paragraphs and then, you know, just to give you a sense of what that's like. I quote, on June 18th, 2021, an evolutionary biologist named Jesse D. Bloom sent the draft of an unpublished scientific paper he'd written to Dr. Fauci, the chief medical advisor to the President of the United States. A bespectacled, boyish-looking, 43-year-old, often clad in short-sleeved checkered shirts, Bloom specializes in the study of how viruses evolve. Quote, he is the most 
ethical scientist I know, end quote, said Sergey Pond, a fellow evolutionary biologist, quote, he wants to dig deep and discover the truth, end quote. The paper Bloom had written, known as a preprint, because it had yet to be peer-reviewed or published, contained sensitive revelations about the National Institute of Health, the federal agency that oversees biomedical research. In the interests of transparency, he wanted Fauci, who helms the NIH sub-agency, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, NIAID, he wanted him to see it ahead of time. Under ordinary circumstances, the preprint might have sparked a respectful exchange of views, but this was no ordinary preprint and no ordinary moment. More than a year into the pandemic, the genesis of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, was still a mystery. Most scientists believed that he had made the leap from bats to human animals via an intermediate species, most likely a market in Wuhan, most likely at a market in Wuhan, China, where live wild animals were slaughtered and sold. Just a side note there, no animals, absolutely no animals, and they've tested a whole shit ton of them. No animals at the market ever tested positive for COVID. That did not get it from a human. Uh, I'm going to skip ahead ahead. Anyway, basically, the preprint that Bloom had written was just like bringing to light the fact that some early sequences of SARS-CoV-2, genomic sequences of SARS-CoV-2, have been deleted from from the NIH archive. So Jesse Bloom was like, what the fuck? Why is the NIH deleting genetic sequences at the request of Chinese scientists? I'm going to start reading a little bit again here. After Bloom described his research, the Zoom meeting became extremely contentious. And just as a side note, a few other scientists have been invited to to participate in this Zoom meeting between Fauci and Jesse Bloom. Anderson leapt in, that's Christian Anderson, saying he found the preprint, quote, deeply troubling, end quote. If the Chinese scientists wanted to delete their sequences from the database, which NIH policy entitled them to do, it was unethical for Bloom to analyze them further, he claimed. And there was nothing unusual about the early genomic sequences in Wuhan. So at that point, Anderson and another scientist, Nielsen, they start yelling at each other. This is me saying, talking, not the, not the article. Um, and then, and then, you know, after the argument goes on for a while, we come to this. Quote, that's when Anderson made a suggestion that surprised Bloom. He said he was a screener at the preprint server, which gave him access to papers that weren't yet public. He then offered to either entirely delete the preprint or revise it in a way that would leave no record that this had been done. Bloom refused, saying he that that he doubted either option was appropriate, given the contentious nature of the meeting. So yeah, there you have it. Uh, <laughs> I feel like if if you're not following this stuff closely, it's hard to see really the gravity of it. Christian Anderson, he has been a vocal proponent of 
the natural origin side of things, right from the start, he was one of the, maybe he was the lead author, I can't remember anymore, but he was one of the authors of one of the two early papers that really made it seem in March 2020 that made it seem that there was a scientific consensus around the natural spillover. And he participated recently uh, in February 25th on a paper written by Michael Warby, another uh, natural spillover proponent, virologist, scientist, um, who the paper claimed that they had analyzed, reanalyzed all the genomic sequences coming out of uh, Wuhan and had conclusively arrived at the conclusion that it was, it could only have been a natural spillover event. Um, which I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, like right before that came out, like a day before it came out, uh, there was a preprint out of China, uh, claiming the exact opposite. But, um, um, anyway, just showing that there was no evidence whatsoever for a natural spillover. Anderson has been kind of, I think he went off of Twitter for a while and then now he's back and he's kind of this contentious figure at this point for being so bullish around his, you know, on his his position. One other thing that Eben mentions is that there was another paper written by another group of scientists based in Italy which claim that the virus was going around weeks before the first reported case in Wuhan, which is where I think where most people at this point, where where many of the lab leak investigators at least land on. And Michael Warby also, you know, some of his research, despite his current preprint, which got a lot of media attention. It was published in the New York Times, which is rare, rare, rare for a preprint to make headlines. Michael Warby's own research of the genomic sequences revealed, uh, you know, last year that he believed that the virus was circulating weeks before it finally emerged in the market. Uh, in the Wuhan market, in the Huanan seafood market. Anyway, I think um, it's a good read. I feel like the article is interesting. It gives like a nice overview of the Peter Daszak position. It's so funny that, yeah, Peter Daszak is the center of the article, but really like the juicy parts are not at all about Peter Daszak or EcoHealth Alliance. Uh, Chris, yeah, this created quite the fanfare on Twitter. Uh, Jesse Bloom, who's also active on Twitter, published his thoughts about it, you know, like try to like fill in whatever gaps there were. He is not particularly out to get anybody. I mean, he did mention Christian Anderson by name, uh, in these things that happened, but he doesn't go out of his way to be, to vilify anyone. 
it was just like surprised that this happened, that somebody would try to intervene in the publication of a paper because it was politically inconvenient to say that the NIH was collaborating with Chinese scientists in erasing data. I don't know if I should talk about Peter Daszak a bit more. I feel like, like I said, uh, the article doesn't, I mean, it hits a lot on him, but it, there's, there's no juicy bits. I mean, like, he's, he's out to make money. And he's just, you know, he's like part of the non-for-profit industrial complex that happens, you know, in, in this particular portion that happens to Center of Virology. He was the, one of the lead writers, one of the, the, the guy who spearheaded the effort to create the Lancet letter. If you're following the origins of COVID story at all, you know what that means. If not, you can read this article and find out. Um, yeah, and I feel like it's some good reporting. And that's all I'm going to say about that for the moment. Thank you, Vanity Fair. It's not the first time that I've relied on Vanity Fair. You know, people who've been listening to it for a while will know that I also relied on Vanity Fair for the Havana Syndrome story um, many, many uh, months ago, last year sometime. They do good reporting. Um, one thing, one thing that, like, I did not expect to happen during these pandemic times. Also, anyway, I was going to say something really depressing, but I won't for the moment. Uh, I'll skip it. One of the unexpected consequences of the last couple of years of the pandemic, for me personally, is that for the first time ever, I am interested in the JFK assassination. It's all linked. <laughs> for real. <laughs> Man. I mean, I don't mean like directly linked, whatever. But I'm go, you know, I've gotten old, and I'm like, oh yeah, history. Oh yeah, it's such a fascinating thing. I better hook up uh, to like the History Channel and watch Ancient Aliens. I'm kidding. I, <laughs> but I am like finally. I think it's because I've been listening to a couple of podcasts that like have dealt well, one of them that dealt with it quite extensively and another that kind of like touches upon it, uh, touches on podcasts like that deal with like American foreign policy in, 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 in very direct ways. Um, I, yeah, those two podcasts are, one is called Blowback, uh, which that's kind of like, um, Season, uh, it focuses each season on a different, like, important, um, like, at this point, well, the, the first season was focused on Afghanistan. Was it Afghanistan or Iraq? No, the first season was focused on Iraq, on the war in Iraq, uh, and how, you know, what preceded it, what happened during it, what's the, what has happened since. And the second season was all around the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is where JFK comes in. Uh, and another podcast that I'm listening to quite a bit now, uh, regularly, is just kind of like history nerds, uh, American foreign policy history nerds. Uh, it's called American Prestige, and it is really analyzing American foreign policy through a leftist lens um, and how fuck up 
fucked up and uh, trying to analyze current events through a left lens, a genuinely left lens, not like the fake left, like AOC or the you know or the NDP in Canada, bunch of cucks. So it's quite fun trying to like um, trying to yeah getting a different perspective on things other than the mainstream view of current events. I think I'm going to leave it there. And yeah, I will link to both Catherine Eben articles and maybe, uh, eh, I think that's plenty. <laughs> that's plenty of reading to do. Um, one of them, one of them, the first one is actually already um, set up for, they're set up for listening to, so you can have like a computer read it to you. Which is great. I love it. I love it. Okay. That's it for today. Talk to you later. Bye.